Well, as we are getting closer to the end of the book of Revelation, as we continue our series called Revelation, the Next Dimension, we come to Revelation 17 this evening, and I've entitled it, The Great Fall Part 1. In chapters 17 and 18, we are going to watch the Lord dismantle the world system that the Antichrist has created, and he dismantles it just prior to his return. He will dismantle the religious component of it in Revelation 17. He will dismantle the economic and political component of it in Revelation 18. And then he will return in Revelation 19. Now, what do I mean when I speak of a world system? From the very beginning of history, as you look at world governing empires, there are three components bolstered by a fourth. Let me say that again. When you look at world history and you consider the world empires that have um, existed during the world's history, there are three components bolstered by one. Now, what do I mean by that? Every world governing empire that has ever um, dominated the world has had three distinct components within it that allowed it to govern the majority of people on the earth. Let me tell you what those three are. There was an economic component, there was a political component, and there was a religious component. If the empire could dominate the majority of people through economic conformity, through political conformity, through religious conformity, it would have sufficed to dominate those people sufficiently to allow itself to become a world power. Does that make sense to you? But those three are bolstered by something else. The only way you can um, satisfy the requirements of a world dominance is through a very strong military, isn't it? You have to have a military that will enforce the will upon the people of the world governing empire. So the fourth component of a world dominating empire is a military one. And you will see that throughout world history. This isn't just confined to biblical history, which parallels world history, but you see it. For example, you see it when in just in the last 200 years, we've had uh, the rise and fall of different empires. Let's consider the British Empire, which is probably one that many still are somewhat, somewhat aware of. They bolstered that empire because of their economic policies, their political policies, and their religious policies. And they had a military that dominated what aspect of the world? The British Empire was known for their what? Ships, their their fleets. It was only until that was surpassed by air superiority that the British Empire started to fade. And that's how the United States of America came in. 
And it's interesting because if you look at it today, there's the political end of democracy. There is the economic end of the dollar around the world today, isn't there? And still the component of the the Christian faith that is still there, but is teetering greatly. And then what bolsters it? The American military. Now, I wouldn't consider us a world-dominating empire, though many would call America imperialists for sure. But that being said, you see this pattern throughout history. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. The same three components bolstered by a fourth. The Antichrist is no different. The Antichrist raised a political portion, an economic portion, and a um, religious component. It is this religious component that in chapter 17, God deals with and brings to nothing. In fact, the Antichrist himself turns on the religious component that bolstered his popularity in the world. That's what we're going to see within the text of 17, that the Antichrist himself turned on that religious component. And he himself turned against it and brought it to nothing. But it happened according to God's will, which we'll clearly show and demonstrate in our text this evening. When we get to chapter 18, we're going to see the political and the economic aspect crumble. And all of this takes place before the Lord's return. And when the Lord returns in 19, who is in the valley of Megiddo waiting for him? The military that bolstered the three. The great battle of Armageddon. So it's very interesting. Revelation 17 is, is, is what some call an interpreter's nightmare. Even though the angel interprets it for us. Because after John initially sees the vision in the wilderness that the angel shows him, it says that John is marveled by it. That word marveled means amazed. He's in wonderment. He's in awe of what he has just seen. He is confounded by what he has just seen. And the angel says, why do you marvel? I'm about to tell you the answer. Now that may relieve you, right? Because you think of the Gospels, don't you? When Jesus used to tell these parables and all the disciples I could just see were bobbing their heads. Oh, that's so wise. Oh my goodness. Did you hear that teaching of our Lord? That was fantastic. No clue what it meant, but it sounded good coming out. And then Jesus would often then privately tell them what it meant, didn't he? And it made sense. So John, and again, one of the disciples who were accustomed to hearing a parable and possibly not understanding it and waiting for the explanation, saw a vision. He marveled by it. The angels saw him marveling about it and said, oh, don't worry, I'm going to tell you what it's all about. You would think for a moment that John would feel better, right? Until he gets the explanation which raises an interpretive challenge when it comes to the book of Revelation and what is called apocalyptic genres. How far in the interpretation does God want us to go? Do you ever think about that? Is it possible that when we try to interpret passages of prophecy, we go farther than God actually wants us to go? Trying to bring meaning to passages 
where we still actually don't have all the information yet, and yet we are assigning meaning kind of haphazardly to a passage and then running with that meaning, propagating that meaning, and then perpetuating that meaning. And in actuality, God says, man, you've gone a little too far. And this is how sensationalism and and conjecture and speculation start to creep in. And the next thing you know, we're looking for signs and wonders rather than just simply reading the text and waiting for God to fulfill the text exactly the way He's going to fulfill it. Does God give us signs? Sure He does. Those signs are always to keep us uh, focused on the Lord, to show us that His return is imminent, it could happen at any time. But the signs are not meant for us to begin to formulate calculations to predict exactly when these things are going to happen. But when we come to Revelation chapter 17, we begin in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and, and with the wine of, those, uh, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. We begin with an invitation. An invitation by one of the seven angels that is... Uh, introduced to us for the first time in Revelation 16. It is these angels that are pouring out the last seven judgments upon the earth. These angels are the angels pouring out the bold judgments upon the earth. And we begin with a simple invitation. And we are going to begin to try to interpret this passage slowly by allowing the words to develop and obtaining as much information as we can from the information that we have been given on the page. Before we look beyond the words, we're going to look at the words. Does that make sense? Then we can look and see if we can find deeper meaning to these things by using the Old Testament to be our key to interpreting what we see here in the New Testament. So let's begin by looking at some of the very obvious uh, points of evidence that we are given here in just the first verses. Again, we have one of the seven angels inviting John to see what? The judgment of the prostitute. So the very first thing that we hear is the fact that a prostitute is going to be what? Judged. So that's the very first thing. We don't know what this prostitute is. We have a prostitute who is about to be judged. So the question then is apparent. What is the great prostitute? Well, let's see from the information how that question answers itself. What do we know so far? Number one, she is about to be judged. Number two, she is seated on many waters. Number three, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. 
And number four, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk with the wine from her immorality. This is what we've been given. This is the invitation that John has been offered to come and see the judgment of this great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of those of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. The explanation of the details of chapter 17 verses 1 and 2 begin in verse 3. He begins by carrying John away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Well, we have more information. John is then taken in the spirit into the wilderness, which means a deserted place. That's what it would represent at that time. And he is given a vision of a woman riding a very, very precarious beast. A beast that may sound familiar to you because we've been introduced to the beast in prior chapters of Revelation. The beast is scarlet. It is full of blasphemous names. It has seven heads, ten horns. And again, this is very familiar. We've met him earlier on, specifically in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, as John wrote, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. All we're doing is observing the text and gathering information. Before we launch into interpreting and uh, bringing more detail, texture, and flavor to these words, we are simply just reading what it says. Why are we doing it this way? I'm trying to show you how to personally study prophetic teaching. So you can do this on your own when you come to other books like the book of Zechariah, like the book of Ezekiel, like the book of Daniel. I'm giving you a demonstration, a brief demonstration of how to go about interpreting these passages. We're just observing the text. We are reading the words for what they say, and then we are going to begin to build upon that foundation. We come to the woman, and she happens to be arrayed in purple and scarlet. Again, we're not going to assign meaning. We are just looking at the words. She was adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And in her hand was a cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. 
She had a name on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes of the earth's and of the earth's abominations, excuse me. And then we read she was drunk on the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And please notice with me in verse 6, John's reaction to it all. I was greatly marveled at what he saw. Read it with me here. As we come, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. It tells me that John is astonished by what he is seeing. And we should take that into account. John, one of the twelve apostles of Jesus Christ, one who has already given us 16 chapters in the book of Revelation, correct? Is now making a comment. He's inserting a comment in here. I greatly marveled at what I saw. And we had many things to marvel at up until this point, didn't we? But now he's making a distinction. Okay, there's something different going on here. Something significant. The word marveled, again, could be wonder. It could be full of amazement. It could be, uh, I was taken back by it. I, 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 I saw something and I, I, I couldn't comprehend it all at a moment. I needed a minute just to chew on it because it just didn't sink in. It, I, it just didn't click with me. I, I wasn't really aware of what I was seeing. Have you ever seen something like that? Have you ever seen something where you, you see it and you're like, what just happened? That's what he's saying here. Now the angel comes and he comforts John, as we stated earlier. But all we have done up until this point in the first six verses is just gathered the facts. Nothing but the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. We haven't assigned any meaning. We haven't assigned any kind of interpretive process. All we did was observe the text. We just read it. And images obviously have been created in your mind, haven't they, by this, by the grammar here, the vocabulary. And that's absolutely acceptable. You know why? That's what John wants to do. It's not wrong to have a, a mind's eye picture of what John is saying here. That's what he is wanting you to do. He's wanting you to consider it in your mind. That's what he's doing. He's chewing on it. He's marveling at all of this. Then we come to verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? <laughs> okay, well, uh, I can give you a lot of reasons, but John doesn't seem to do that here. Well, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carry her. Now, how many of you are like at this point, just good. We don't have to work through it, right? The angel's going to do the work for us. I'm good with it. I wish that on Saturday afternoons as I'm working through a text of the, past, uh, of the Bible that I'm having difficulty with, an angel would just appear there in my office and just say, Eric, no worries, I got it. Here's the interpretation that you can now give to the church on Sunday and be confident that one is correct. I'd love that, wouldn't you? 
You're having your daily devotions. You start reading something and you're going through it and you're like, God, I have no idea what this means. Wouldn't it be great? The angel just came in. Don't worry about it. Got it. Let me give it to you. Why are you marveling? Why are you all upset? I'll give you the answer. And then he gives the answer. And here we go. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains uh, on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, fallen, one who is. The other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as, as kings for one hour together with the beast. And these are of one mind, and they have handed over their power to the, and the authority to the beast, and they will make war on, war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful." Aren't you glad the angel cleared it up for us? I, what? (laughs) I could just see John. Good. Thank you. What? Paul, what do I do here? That's the interpretation of this passage. That is the legitimate interpretation of this passage. The question is, does God want us to go farther? Does God want us to assign meaning to the interpretation of this passage? Did you ever think about that question for a moment? Should we be content to leave it right where it is even though we don't understand it? That's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because when it comes to biblical prophecy, you know that it's, when it's taught, it's only as good as the uh, conclusions that the teacher comes to, right? And the parallels that the teacher draws from the current culture in which that teacher lives. But here we have John given a vision. We have the angel saying, don't worry about it. And we have the angel given the interpretation, How many of you right now, if I were to say, let's close in prayer, amen, would be satisfied? (laughs) Think about it for a moment. But in actuality, that's exactly the way this text plays out. But can we derive from biblical history and understand some of these components a little more thoroughly to give us a sketch of a possible scenario that this may be describing? I think we can without stepping over that line of, well, speculation, conjecture, uh, you know, hype, 
sensationalism, etc. It is interesting to me that out of the <laughs> out of the angel's explanation, I, I think that the verse that sits with me the most comfortably is verse 14, right? This one I can live with. Uh, they make war on the Lamb. The Lamb conquers them. For He is the Lord of lords, kings of kings, and those who, call, are, are, who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. I can live with that all day, can't you? Bottom line, sum it up for me. Got this whole explanation. Bottom line, they war against the Lamb. The Lamb wins. We are part of His faithful, called, and chosen. Amen. Let's go home. I love the description of all of you, don't you? That you who are in Him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's an awesome thing to know. But I do believe that we can help our understanding of some of this imagery a little bit more thoroughly by going back into biblical history and looking at each component a little bit closer. He begins by saying that the real mystery is not the woman or the beast independently. It is the two collectively that constitutes the real mystery here. The two working together. That's something that we should notice. That's the very first thing he says in verse 7. It's the two working together. That seems to be the crux of the real uh, bird's eye of the mystery. The two working together. One amalgamated amongst the other. Let's begin with the beast, number one. He is described twice, or maybe three times in our text, as was, and is not, and is. A very odd description, but it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Someone else was described in that exact same way. Who was it? Can anybody think of that? Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys to the death of Hades. It is a parody. The first thing we learn about the beast is that there seems to be a parody to who was, who is not, and who is. In Revelation 13, we discover that the Antichrist will be, appear to be mortally wounded and then appear to regain life. A resurrection scenario. So that gives us a little bit more detail concerning that aspect of the beast. It is the same one that we read earlier. The beast is synonymous with the Antichrist and the devil. It flips back and forth throughout the book of Revelation. More specifically here, it appears to be referring to the Antichrist who derives his power through the devil. And as a result, it is he who was, who is not, and who is. And we learned last time that the world was astonished by that. They were amazed by that. And the world followed him. He will deceive all of those who dwell on the earth as a result of this. 
He will demonstrate a supernatural ability that will draw the world to follow Him. We've seen that numerous times already. Then we come to the seven heads. And these seven heads are very clearly stated as seven mountains that the woman is seated upon. And we have a little qualifier that is given to us by John here in our text. And it says, wisdom is needed here at this moment. Now, what does that tell you? He gives an explanation and he says to understand this explanation, wisdom is needed. That means it's going to cause you to think a little bit, right? It wasn't going to be just one of those things that was obvious from the get-go. It was something that just needed to be thought out and needed to be compared and needed to be thought through a little bit more carefully before the real understanding of it could be ascertained. But that being said, it's not a mystery that is hidden that you have to dig through the annals of history and behind the nooks and the cranny and under every little stone. It is there in the Word of God and you just need to start bringing it all together to understand its meaning. The seven heads are seven mountains and the woman is seated upon them. The key to that sentence is the word seated. It means enthroned. It means that she is placed in a position of authority by those seven mountains, which doesn't make any sense to us right now. But then he goes on to say very clearly that these seven mountains are also seven kings. Verse 10. They are seven kings, five whom have fallen, one who is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come he must remain only a little while. So we have a little bit more understanding that this relationship between the beast and this woman, her authority is given because she is attached herself, aligned herself with the beast, and she is seated in this seven mountains. We'll give you even further clarity in just a moment. Again, we talked about the seven kings. We have a description here. Five have fallen, one is, and the other one is not yet to come. But when he does come, he must only remain for a little while. And as for the beast in verse 11, that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. What does that mean? Well, the ten horns are ten kings. And they have not yet received their royal power, but when the beast does, they will. They are of one mind, and they will hand their power over to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, and they will conquer the lamb. And the I'm sorry, they will, um, and the Lord will conquer them. They will make war with the lamb, and the Lord will conquer them. And the those who are with him, who are faithful, true, and called, and chosen, etc. This is what we have. And now we are going to look at this final portion before we look at all what means. I'm trying to drill this into your head. We are going to gain every detail that we can before we go back and start assigning meaning to it. In Revelation 15, I'm sorry, 17:15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Now, Understand, remember in verse 2, we were told that the prostitute sits on the waters, right? Wouldn't it have been worthless for us to even speculate what the waters were at that point? So we had to read further. 
Great lesson to be learned. Read the whole text before coming to any conclusions. So the waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. The whole world. That's what that means. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beasts that will hate the prostitute. Uh Uh-oh, something's happened here. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Something's going to take place here. But for God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purposes by being of one mind and having and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Everything that's happening is happening exactly according to God's will. Verse 18. And then the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So aren't you glad that we didn't assign any further meaning to the woman, right? It's a city. A great city. Now, the waters mean the people, multitudes, nations, and language. The ten horns are the ten kings that turn on the prostitute and they do so as God has led them to do. The woman is the great city that has dominion over all the kings of the earth. That's what we've been given. Now let's do a little bit of work. What does this all mean And as we wrap all of this up? For verse 18, it, concerning the woman, makes it clear that she is a city and in John's day she was reigning over the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth. So this city, what is this city? Well, there's also another hint that is given to us. She is seated amongst what? On top of what? She is seated on top of what? Seven mountains. In John's day, there was a city that was seated on seven mountains the very earliest commentary that has ever been written on the book of Revelation, which about 325 AD, uh, AD, so you're going way back close to the original, stated that the seven mountains clearly depicted one city at that time, the city of Rome. Now, how does that play out? That's all we know right now. But let's see if we can go a little bit farther. It is situated on seven hills, and when Revelation was written, Rome was reigning over the kings of the earth. When it comes to the beast, this is the same beast that we saw in chapter 13, the Antichrist. In verse 8, it indicates that it's the world, that this world ruler will come out of the bottomless pit, suggesting that he was raised from the dead. Totally consistent with what we read in Revelation 13. Who was, who is not, and who is. The beast is scarlet in color, linking him to the dragon Satan of Revelation 12.3. The fact that the beast has seven heads and ten horns also identifies him with Satan in 12.3 and in Revelation 3.1. 
We can also go back into the book of Daniel to discover this beast again in Daniel chapter 7, described in the exact same way. Verse 10 tells us that the seven heads are uh, seven kings as well as seven mountains. And in verse 12, it explains that the ten horns are ten more kings. So the beast resembles the kingdom of the Antichrist. I wrote it out so we get this straight. As well as his own person. The seven kings of verse 10 could also be translated seven kingdoms. In other words, the kingdoms of the beast will be the seventh world kingdom, the one that has not yet come. So here's the stage. The Antichrist in the last days is depicted as this beast who has seven horns, I'm sorry, seven heads, seven mountains, and seven kings are represented by those seven heads. The reason Rome is involved here is because the last governing world empire according to the biblical standard was what? Rome. According to Daniel chapter 2, it is clear. The legs of the statue that Daniel gave the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar to, the legs were of legs of iron. They were of... uh, they represented the Roman Empire, and the last empire were found in the toes. There were ten, right? Also depicted by the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7. And these toes were made of what? Clay and iron mixed together. So it had its roots in the old Roman Empire, and that's why you see the ten heads representing Rome and representing the ten kings. I'm sorry, the seven kings. Now, who are those seven kings? Well, we're going to discover that in just a moment. The seven heads. We have already seen that these heads represent seven mountains and seven kings or kingdoms. The five kingdoms that have fallen, according to verse uh, 9 and 10, were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. How do we know this? These are the ones that were listed out from the very beginning of the Bible until now. Though Daniel's statue started with Nebuchadnezzar at the head, why? God was giving it to him from his point. But before Daniel, there were two other uh, empires that suppressed God's people. Who were they? The Assyrians? and the Egyptians back in the book of Exodus. Okay? But it goes on to say that the kingdom that is, that was Rome in John's day, and yet there would be yet another to come, the seventh, would be the kingdom of the beast. So there is still one yet to come. And that seventh kingdom is depicted in the ten horns, because it'll be a federation, a coalition of ten nations that will be the last governing world empire. If we compare the seven heads to specific kings, then the five who have fallen of Roman rulers would be Julius Caesar, Tiberius, Caliglia, Claudius, and Nero. The one who is would have been Domitian, And the one who is yet to come would be the king of the Roman Empire that is revised at the end times, and that would be the Antichrist. 
So again, we are looking at biblical tradition. We are bringing it through in a biblical way where it becomes transcendent through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is picking up where it had left off and completing the images that Daniel originally saw. That's all we're doing right here. When it comes to the ten horns in verse 12, these are ten kings. They parallel the ten toes of Daniel's image in Daniel 2, 36-45, the revived Roman Empire. In John's day, these kings had not yet received their power. It is reserved for the last days when the federation of these ten nations uh, come together under the leadership of the Antichrist and they rise to power. They will give their support to the beast. They will only have it for a short period of time before the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, And they will be the ones that destroy the harlot who is the one, the prostitute that is riding this beast. Now I'm going to sum all of this up for you. I'm throwing a lot at you. And then it comes to the waters. The waters on which the harlot is seated is the people of the world. She will have influence over the whole world politically, economically, and most of all religiously. That's about as much as we can contribute to these verses. This is what we know using the Old Testament as a key. The imagery and the symbolism that is found here in Revelation chapter 17 is nothing new except for the prostitute. What is the meaning of this prostitute? What is the big picture here? We already see that she's amalgamated to the beast and that her rise is due to the fact that she sits uh, and is seated upon the seven mountains who are seven kings. There are two things that can be ascertained from that. She has always been there from the beginning. Now that's one of the things that I think recent um, study has produced, and I agree with wholeheartedly. She has been there from the beginning and will really manifest herself in the last days. Now this becomes fascinating. The key to understanding who this prostitute is is understanding the name that she apparently is uh, wearing on her forehead. If she truly was a prostitute or adorned as a prostitute in John's day, the name would have been written on a band around her head. Prostitutes were required to do that so they could be selected by those who chose to select them. In that name gives us some real clues to what I believe the prostitute represents. And it's something that isn't new to the uh, book of Revelation, but something that has been there. Seated on the seven mountains, which gives her her authority. As we see, there are also seven kings, which we talked about. They have been there from the beginning. And she has been there lurking and now has manifested herself completely and is going to be overthrown completely at the end. And the key to it all, I believe, is found in the name that she is given. 
Look at Revelation 17, 1 and 2 with me again. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. We looked at all of that. With whom the kings of this earth, of the earth, have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So she has affected and infected every individual from king down to the most common person. That's what it's saying there. But what is it? Most look at Babylon really when it in the Old Testament when it comes to the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites, the book of Daniel specifically, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. But do we understand that Babylon existed long before that? We need to go back to Revelation, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10 and 11 to see the rise of Babel, to understand a little bit more about who this prostitute or what this prostitute actually represents. It is a fascinating study to understand the heart of man in their attempt to build that tower onto God. They desired to create a name for themselves, no longer wanting to be subjected to the will of God and no longer wanting to be dispersed by God through all the nations of the world. They made a final stand and they made their stand there at the Babel, the Tower of Babel, which then became the city of Babylon eventually. But in their defiance, in their moment of rebellion, as they reached out and they said, we're going to touch the heavens, we're going to reach God, we're going to rebel against his desire for us to to disperse throughout all the lands, we are going to stay one because we have strength in numbers. And of course, God confused their language and separated them all to various regions of the world. At that moment of rebellion, something was birthed. Do you understand that the bricks that they used to build the Tower of Babel were specifically designed to withstand a flood? The Bible says that those bricks were burnt in a very significant way to withstand water pressure. Henry Morris has done some great work on that, and so have others. They were rebelling against God. Don't let anyone tell you that they were not. They were going to stand the judgment of God. They didn't believe he was possibly never going to judge again through water, and they wanted to make sure that he was not going to judge against water. And why do you think they made the tower so high? So the water wouldn't cover it. It's a very fascinating concept. Does anybody remember the leader of the individuals at that time who raised that tower? Nimrod. $64,000 question. Who was Nimrod's wife? It's an obscure thing in history, but it's well-researched and well-found out. Nimrod did have a wife, and her name was Samarius. Samarius was responsible for the mystery religions of Babylon. She was known to be a sorceress. 
And through Samarius, she had a son named Tammuz. Tammuz, you may have heard of. That name sounds familiar. Well, let me kind of bring you up through the biblical history of what we are talking about here. The legend of Tammuz was something very interesting. For Samarius, Samaria, it's very, Samarius is, I believe, the way you properly pronounce her name, believed that her son Tammuz was conceived miraculously by a ray of light. And therefore she found herself to be with child. After the child was born, the child was known to do miraculous things, according to legend. But the child died because he was gored by a boar, a wild animal. She then went and prayed for 40 days, and apparently the child resurrected after 40 days. And as a result, a famous image of her was created... And that image, for most of you, if I were to show it to you, I should have pulled one for you. You would say, no, that's not the image of Samaria and Tammuz. That's the Madonna. It's a picture of mother and child together. And mother and child together, there's a ray of light coming from it. It's a famous painting. You can go online and find it for yourself. It's a famous painting. They both have halos. There's a ray of light coming down on Tammuz and so forth. It's a parallel, of course, to the real narrative of the Bible, isn't it? A false parody. And it plays out throughout the Bible. The most fascinating thing has just uh, recently been written, and that is that an individual tract that as the nations dispersed after the confusion, the world empires all had a very interesting mother and child deity within them. And you would know the names of some of those, Ishtar and so forth. But in the Bible, Tammuz is worshipped often in the Old Testament and is absolutely condemned by God in doing so. But you don't know it as Tammuz. Because later, as the Babylonian history came around, they changed his name to Baal. And it became the, the pagan god Baal. And children were sacrificed and so on and so forth. What am I getting at here? In a very quick, summarized way. It may be a little confusing. But at the Tower of Babel, and the ultimate rebellion against God, a false religious system was created that permeates almost every layer of history up through the, up through the uh, annals of history. And I believe that false system is the system that is judged here and who truly is the prostitute that is riding the beast. Now, what is that false system going to look like at the time that the beast is judged? It's going to be very interesting. I personally believe that the world religious system is not going to look like many believe it is going to look like. 
I believe that the religious system that is going to dominate the first three and a half year reign of the Antichrist will be that of one of peace and tolerance and total ecumenicalism. It's going to embrace every religion of the world. It's going to break down every barriers. And you are going to see it under one big umbrella of unity that today many would say you could buy the bumper sticker that says coexist. But all of them have the same fundamental principle to them. Reject Jesus Christ at all costs for who He truly is. They're all going to be separate. The Islamics, the uh, Roman Catholics can all be in accordance to one another. And that's what you see pushing for today, don't you? Continued ecumenicalism that is one step after another. It's not going to be until the Antichrist turns, these ten nations turn on the prostitute, eliminate that. Why? Because the tolerance is going to be built on a foundation of what's called polytheism. Many gods, right? But the Antichrist is going to bring it back to what? Monotheism. And that's not going to be tolerated. And so the prostitute must be dealt with. Many have done great research to show that this religious system is identified here in Revelation 17, and I believe further work is being done to consider that the roots of it go back all the way to the Tower of Babel. And that's where we should be looking at for the meaning of this prostitute. Again, a woman. The prostitute term has been used for Nineveh, it has been used for Jerusalem, it has been used in other cases, but it always means spiritual adultery. When it came to the prophet Hosea, he had God had Hosea marry a prostitute, and as a result show how the nation of Israel was prostituting itself to pagan gods. And now this whole religion is based upon this spiritual idolatry leading to spiritual adultery. They're going to have a form of godliness, but not denying its power in the last days. It is a complex subject. And again, we ask the question, how far past the angel's interpretation do you want to go? I'm throwing these things out for your consideration. I ask you to do the research yourself. Look through the Bible. Do the research for yourself. But I, again, am pointing to the name that is on the prostitute and saying, go back to the original Tower of Babel, discover what was happening there, take a look at the evidence and extra-biblical and biblical events and start mapping them through and see if you do not get a consistency that leads all the way up until this point. Meaning that there will be the ability of salvation outside the person of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate intention of all of this. Now remember, at the Tower of Babel, the promise of Eve still rang true, right? That one was going to be born of the seed of the woman. Very interesting thing. Because it's always been the seed of the man, not the seed of the woman. And that person was going to crush the head of Satan and by it bruise his heel. The promise. Samarius, I believe, tried to fulfill that promise falsely. And it's very interesting. I couldn't believe how much information was out there about her. 
as I started to read about her and Tammuz and so on and so forth, and to see how it progressed through the ages up until the end. But ultimately, the picture is this, that at the end, here's what I want to get to, that's the roots, at the end, there is going to be a world religious system that will bolster the rise of the Antichrist, that he, based upon God's will, will turn against as he resurrects a statue to himself that states, now worship me and nothing else. And if you do not worship me and take the allegiance with a number on your hand or your forehead, you shall die. You won't be able to buy or sell, but you shall also be martyred. Isn't that interesting that this uh, prostitute um, filled herself on the blood of the saints which is an Old Testament reference. Saints isn't only used in the New Testament. 30 times the word saint is used in the book of Daniel for Old Testament believers. And then it goes on to say the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, the ones who are martyred through the tribulation period. The prostitute fed on these things. So this prostitute will be an persecution towards the people of God in the last days. That's what we're saying here. Chuck Swindoll said that there are three elements of a religious system that opposes God. There are three foundations of a man-made false religion. Number one, the rejection of God's promises, faithfulness. Number two, a rebellion against God's commands, disobedience. And number three, the refusal of God's grace, which is legalism. This woman seems to draw people away from God in that way here in the last days her harlotry will be that of bringing people into spiritual adultery. We covered a lot tonight. A lot to chew on. Again, difficult chapter. We have the interpretation of the angel. We looked at it a little bit farther. We looked at the various possibilities. We went through them very quickly. And yet in it all, we see that God is in control of it all, isn't he? According to God's word, until his words are fulfilled. Highlight that. Because that's really the key here. All of this is happening as he dismantles this last world religion in that way. To set up the stage for his return of Revelation 19. Let's pray.